Welcome to Sights and Sounds, a series of podcasts presented by the Gotham Center for New York City History for Open House New York Weekend. In this episode, Michael Haddam talks about the Prison Ship Martyrs Monument in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, where the remains of nearly 11,000 soldiers are buried, captives of the British who died from unspeakable treatment and torture during the American Revolution. New York was central to the military strategy of both the Patriots and the Loyalists, and the scene of that war's most important battle. Yet the city is seldom remembered as a major stage in our nation's struggle for independence. Here, Haddam, the visiting professor of history at Knox College, finishing a book on the surprisingly tense debates over popular memory of the American Revolution during the early years of the Republic, explains why. For more podcasts like this and for more Gotham Center programming, visit us at gothamcenter.org and sign up to our mailing list. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to the Prison Ship Martyrs Monument podcast produced for the Gotham Center for New York City History and Open House New York Weekend 2018. My name is Dr. Michael Haddam. I am a visiting assistant professor of history at Knox College and a former postdoctoral fellow at the New York Historical Society. I received my undergraduate degree from the City College of New York and my PhD from Yale University. Captured by the British during the earliest days of the American Revolution and held in prison ships off Brooklyn and New York, well over 10,000 Americans were exposed to the most unimaginable treatment. Many died, yet some lived to tell the tale of what had happened to them and their fellow soldiers while in British captivity in New York during the Revolutionary War. Following calls to commemorate their sacrifice to the cause of the Revolution throughout the 19th century, the prison ship Martyrs Monument was erected in 1908. And this podcast tells the story of some of the first American prisoners of war and their contribution to the nation's founding, as well as their subsequent commemoration here at the Prison Ship Martyrs Monument. Our story begins at the beginning of the American Revolution. Americans typically don't think of New York City as a place of importance in the story of the American Revolution, and I think that's a product of two reasons, one having to do with the history of the war, and the other having to do with how we remember it. First, our popular memory of the Revolution is so filled with stories about Boston and Philadelphia that New York City seems to not be an important part of the story. Yet, the city served as the site of the biggest battle of the war, and after that served as the North American headquarters for the British Army until the war's end. In other words, the city was occupied by the British for eight years, while Boston was occupied for less than two years and Philadelphia for a single winter. The second reason New York City is not loomed large in our popular memory of the Revolution has to do with what happened in the century after the war. Unlike Boston and Philadelphia, who went to great lengths to preserve places of importance and commemorate events with monuments, New York City effectively paved over much of its revolutionary history. While Bostonians and Philadelphians could point to proud revolutionary moments that occurred in their cities, the Tea Party and the Battle of Bunker Hill in Boston and the Continental Congresses and Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, New Yorkers' history of the Revolution was one of occupation and suffering and displacement, and therefore was not something many New Yorkers were keen to remember. As a result, New York City has no equivalent to Boston's Freedom Trail or Philadelphia's Independence Hall or Old City. There are a few remaining sites from the 18th century left in downtown Manhattan. During the Revolution, the city extended about as far north as Chambers Street, and in the 19th century, as the city helped drive the nation's industrial revolution, the southern tip of the expanding island became a financial center, 
and its real estate became far too valuable to waste on monuments or buildings not devoted to making money. But while hostilities between British troops and colonial militia broke out in Massachusetts in 1775, it was really with the arrival of the British in New York in the summer and fall of 1776 that marked the proper beginning of the Revolutionary War. After Washington's new Continental Army forced the British to evacuate Boston in March of 1776, the regiments there sailed to Nova Scotia. There, they regrouped and prepared to fight a full-out war. General Washington, rightly assuming Britain's intentions, moved his entire army to New York during the spring. By the summer of 1776, those British regiments that had left Boston sailed to New York and awaited the arrival of reinforcements. Because of the city's unparalleled harbor, it made it the most logical place to headquarter the British Army and Navy. It was also strategically located between the troublesome New England colonies and the rest of the colonies, the idea being that the British would hem the New Englanders in and stop the rebellion from spreading. They were, of course, too late. The reinforcements started arriving in July, just as the Continental Congress was declaring the colony's independence in Philadelphia. All told, over the course of the next six weeks, countless ships arrived from England carrying approximately 30,000 troops. One New Yorker at the time said that when he first saw the ships arriving in the harbor, they were so numerous that they looked like a forest. These transports brought the largest expeditionary force ever deployed by the world's most powerful global empire. After assembling on Staten Island on August 22nd, the British began their long-awaited attack on New York. In what came to be known as the Battle of Long Island or the Battle of Brooklyn, the British landed at Gravison Bay across the Narrows and made their way across the sleepy 18th century landscape of Brooklyn. The American army, which was made up of many young men, many with little military experience until this point, had been largely untested in actual 18th century hand-to-hand combat. They did not fare well. Washington was also strategically outmaneuvered by the British commander, General William Howe, leading to a horrible defeat for the Americans. When the British hemmed in the remnants of Washington's army, about 9,000 soldiers, against the shore of the East River, Howe thought the rebellion was over and decided to wait for Washington to submit to defeat. Instead, Washington engineered a daring retreat of his remaining army under the cover of a heavy fog throughout the course of the night. When morning arose, Howe was shocked to find Washington and the Continentals had somehow gotten away. Had he advanced on them that evening instead of waiting, the revolution would have ended that day. The fighting continued as the British chased Washington and his army the length of Manhattan. As they retreated, the Great Fire of 1776 broke out, devastating much of the city. After crossing over to New Jersey, Washington and his army made their way through the state and crossed the Delaware River for some temporary safety. Not long after, Washington and his army would pull off the famous revolution-saving victories at Trenton and Princeton. But during the disastrous Battle of Brooklyn, the Americans lost 300 soldiers and had over 1,000 captured. What were the British supposed to do with a thousand prisoners of war in a largely destroyed tiny city? Initially, they were kept wherever they could be kept, in sugar houses, in the city's jail, and eventually in the city's churches and King's College. By the winter of 1776, as a result of further fighting between the sides throughout New Jersey, the number of prisoners of war reached into the thousands. 
When churches and schools proved insufficient to house all the prisoners, the British began to keep them on transports and hospital ships, which they converted into prison ships, a practice that Britain had employed in previous wars and even for some of its domestic prisoners at home. The first two ships, the Whitby and the Grosvenor, were brought to Wallabout Bay off the shore of Brooklyn and stripped down for their new purpose. The location allowed them to be supplied with food and water, but were far enough from the city that any contagious diseases contracted by the prisoners would not spread to the general population. Also, because the surrounding area consisted of shallow, muddy flats, escape would be near impossible. We have a number of harrowing accounts from prisoners on these ships during the winter of 1776 and 1777. In a letter to his children written in his old age, James Little, an enlisted man from Danbury, Connecticut, later recalled that the prisoners, quote, suffered every inconvenience but death. The ships were so packed with prisoners that they could not all lie down at once. For rations, they were given something called burgoo and scraps of kennel biscuit. Little wrote that in the putrefied, stagnated air of the hold of the vessel crowded with vermin, he and his fellow prisoners grew faint and feeble. It wasn't long before smallpox set in. Little recalled that, quote, dead bodies were hoisted on deck, a cannonball fastened to them, and they were thrown overboard with the shout of, there goes another damn Yankee rebel. Little himself was fortunate to survive the winter and was paroled in February of 1777. On the Whippy, prisoners recalled being packed in so tightly that as many as a third of them suffocated in one night. A prisoner recalled that he was so hungry at one point that he thought, I could eat my own flesh without wincing. Unsurprisingly, the prisoners quickly sank into a state of almost catatonic despair. As stories about the treatment of the prisoners began seeping out, many communities took to recording them when prisoners returned to document them for the Continental Congress. Accounts were published in newspapers and fanned the flames of Americans' hatred and fear of the British Army. Levi Hanford, who was held on a ship unironically named the Good Intent, later recalled, quote, Death and disease reign there in all their terror. I have had men die by the side of me in the night and have seen 15 dead bodies sewed up in their blankets and laid in the corner at one time. Even though prisoners were dying at a rate far beyond that of the battlefields and army camps, the influx of new prisoners throughout 1777 required more ships. The unimaginable circumstances sometimes led to escape attempts, which were hard but not impossible. We have credible reports of some prisoners simply jumping ship and successfully hiding or swimming across the East or Hudson Rivers. One night in December of 1777, Major John Stewart and several of his officers fled a prison ship by quietly lowering themselves into a boat tied up alongside the ship and rowing to New Jersey. Most escape attempts, however, ended unsuccessfully, either through being recaptured or not surviving the waters of the East or Hudson Rivers. By 1778, the situation was worsening as the number of prisoners kept increasing. Robert Sheffield of Connecticut recalled his experience on a ship that year. He wrote, about 359 men confined between decks, of which about one half were Frenchmen, and he was informed that there were three more of these vehicles of contagion. The heat so intense with the hot sun shining all day on the deck that they were all naked, which also served them well to get rid of the vermin, 
but the sick were eaten up alive. Their sickly countenances and ghastly looks were truly horrible, some swearing and blaspheming, some crying, praying and wringing their hands, stalking about like ghosts and apparitions, others delirious and void of reason, raving and storming, some groaning and dying, all panting for breath, some dead and corrupting. The air was so foul at times, he wrote, that a lamp could not be kept burning, by reason of which three boys were not missed until they had been dead three days. He estimated that five or six prisoners died per day on that ship. Accounts of the prisoners' circumstances and treatment continued appearing in the public press throughout the war. Washington, like most Americans, was horrified and outraged at the stories that he was hearing. Initially, he petitioned General Howe to treat the American prisoners better. Howe claimed that they were being treated well, but it quickly became clear that he was being less than truthful. Washington made numerous attempts throughout the war to exchange the prisoners on the ships for British soldiers being held by the Continental Army. So desperate was Washington to relieve his soldiers' sufferings that he was willing to risk replenishing the British Army's ranks with these exchangees, despite initial orders from the Continental Congress not to do so for that very reason. The British kept no official tallies of the number of prisoners or the number who died on the ships. Historian Edwin G. Burroughs estimates that between 10,000 and 18,000 men died on the prison ships in New York City, including approximately 3,000 African-American soldiers. To put that in perspective, the British lost about 8,000 soldiers in battle, while the Americans lost about 6,800 over the course of the entire war. Indeed, contemporary accounts from the end of the war show similar estimates. If we take into account the population of the United States at the time, it appears that about 1% of the overall white population were held captive in New York City, either on land or on ship, at some time during the war. In today's terms, that would represent approximately 3.5 million American prisoners. From a historical perspective, these soldiers both through their experiences as prisoners and through the willingness of those who survived to preserve their stories by writing them down for public consumption, helped focus and spur support for the Patriot cause and discussed with the British throughout the war, including at times when popular support for the resistance seemed to be waning. That alone is a significant contribution in addition to their participation in the actual fighting. As a result, These soldiers, many of whom made the ultimate sacrifice for their new country, made multi-layered contributions to the American Revolution and thereby to the founding of the United States. But the acknowledgement and commemoration of those contributions did not come immediately. Rather, they would be subject to the same type of political and cultural forces that shape popular memory generally. Let's now turn to the story of how those contributions have been remembered and commemorated culminating in no small part in the prison ship Martyrs Monument that stands before you. In the decades immediately following the revolution, the commemoration of the prisoners held on prison ships became highly politicized between the nation's two parties, the largely urban, business-minded Federalist Party, led by Alexander Hamilton, and the agrarian, popular Democratic-Republican Party, led by Thomas Jefferson. Because the Federalists were committed to a strong federal government that would promote manufacturing trade, they took Great Britain as a model for the new republic to emulate. Moreover, 
they recognized the necessity of resuming trade with the former mother country. As a result, they sought to downplay aspects of the war related to British atrocities, including the prison ships. As agrarians, Democratic Republicans offered critiques of urban economies based on low-wage labor, and those critiques appealed greatly to the city's working class, and the party began making significant gains in New York. In part to consolidate these gains, the Democratic Republicans took up the cause of establishing a memorial to the prisoners held on the city's prison ships. Federalists countered by claiming that the Democratic Republicans were politicizing the issue and didn't really care about the prisoners who had been held there. Over in Brooklyn, the memory of the prison ships was still tangibly vivid. For years after the end of the war, visitors to the west coast of Brooklyn could still regularly see the bones of prisoners wash up on the shore, including skulls. After Jefferson's election in 1800, the Tammany Society, later which became known as Tammany Hall, played a major role in agitating for a memorial to the soldiers. Members of the society collected the bones that washed the shore, filling 20 barrels worth by 1805, which they hoped to inter beneath a suitable monument. In the meantime, they were deposited on the site in a small wooden vault. Their efforts coincided with the publication of a number of first-hand accounts by former prisoners of the horrors they endured on the ships. In 1808, a group formed the Wallabout Committee, who proceeded to hold two public ceremonies to commemorate the martyrs of the prison ships. Thousands attended these events and watched Benjamin Romaine, leader of the Tammany Society and former prison ship prisoner, lay the cornerstone of a planned monument which they called the Tomb of the Martyrs. Federalists referred to these events as, quote, burlesques of grief. But the city's residents clearly felt an emotional attachment to the prisoners who had been held on these ships. Ultimately, the Tammany Society failed to raise sufficient funds to construct the actual tome and monument, and the impulse waned as the New Republic once again found itself at war with Great Britain. In the 1820s and 1830s, as the revolutionary generation began disappearing, the fate and contribution of the prison ship martyrs once again drew public interest. In its wake, more first-hand accounts were published. In New York City, the growing industrialization and financialization of the city's economy led to the tearing down of many of the city's most important and visible 18th-century buildings, only furthering the sense of detachment from the revolution among the city's residents. In the early 1850s, public sentiment forced the city to block an extension for the Hudson River Railroad because it would have disturbed the graves of Revolutionary War soldiers. But this instance is notable for being the exception to the rule in 19th century New York. Meanwhile, in Brooklyn, Benjamin Romain had bought the site of the small wooden vault and began trying to raise money for a proper tomb and monument. He covered the old vault, now in some disrepair, with a wooden building that he called the antechamber. Assisting in the cause in the 1840s was a young newspaper writer for the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, named Walt Whitman. In an 1846 Independence Day poem, Whitman wrote, Nor prayers, tears, or stones mark their crumbled-in coffins, their white holy bones. Ultimately, Whitman's numerous editorials calling on the citizens of the city to contribute to the fund to establish the long-awaited Tomb of the Martyrs were unsuccessful in bringing the monument to fruition. After the Civil War, 
there were a number of attempts to reinvigorate interest in the monument. In 1864, the Brooklyn City Council erected a mausoleum in Washington Park to house the bones contained in Romaine's now crumbling and rat-infested antechamber. A number of petitions were sent by city groups to Congress for funds to create a monument, all of them unsuccessful, even though the men who had died on the prison ships in New York City had come from throughout the country. At the turn of the century, however, the efforts achieved a critical mass as the Daughters of the American Revolution joined with local groups to create the Prison Ship Martyrs Monument Association of the United States. Soon after, more than 100 skeletons were found in the Brooklyn Navy Yard, reinvigorating popular interest in the cause. The association sought to capitalize on this circumstance and announced a patriotic celebration to put pressure on Congress by inviting dignitaries from throughout the country. Two years later, Congress acceded and appropriated $100,000 for the monument if the association could raise the same amount, which it did within two years. On October 26, 1907, the cornerstone for the monument was laid, and just over a year later, on November 14, 1908, the prison ship Martyrs Monument was finally unveiled, almost a century to the day after the Tammany Society's first celebrations to raise awareness of the prison ship martyrs and the cause of establishing a monument. Despite this important achievement in the construction and preservation of the prison ship martyrs and their monument a century in the making, the memory of the martyrs and their experiences quickly came to be diminished, if not all but forgotten, by the rest of the country. Those who brought up the British actions were labeled petty Anglophobes for focusing on such things. This perspective only intensified as World War I saw the United States and Great Britain become official allies for the first time. Recalling such behaviors long past was really no way to treat a friend. Even historians made similar arguments and sought to downplay how badly the prisoners had been treated by the British, effectively calling into question the veracity of the accounts produced by those who had been held on the prison ships. In the 1970s, a new generation of historians who sought to uncover the role and contributions of ordinary people to the American Revolution began to take the prisoners and their experiences seriously once again. But while historians' perspective on the prisoners had changed, there was still very little work being done on them. That is, until Edwin G. Burroughs' book, Forgotten Patriots, was published in 2008. Burroughs, who was my mentor as an undergraduate at City University of New York, was a native Michigander who came to New York in the early 1960s to pursue a doctoral degree in history at Columbia University. While there, he met fellow graduate student Mike Wallace, and over the next 20 years, the two collaborated on an immense project that ultimately became Gotham, a history of New York City to 1898. Burroughs and Wallace won a Pulitzer Prize for their book, and shortly after, Wallace was featured in the Rick Burns documentary on the city's history. In the early 1970s, Burroughs joined the faculty of Brooklyn College, where he remained until his retirement in 2011. There, he regularly offered his course, The History of New York City, one of the college's most popular offerings. Indeed, much of the information in this podcast 
comes from the research done by Dr. Burroughs. Listeners interested in learning more about the prisoners in New York City should seek out Burroughs' book, Forgotten Patriots. It is and will likely remain the most thoroughly researched work on the topic of American prisoners during the Revolutionary War for a very long time to come. And I would like to conclude this podcast with Burroughs' own sentiments on the significance of the story. This is a good time, he wrote then, to be reminded that the prisons and prison ships of occupied New York City were not, in fact, the figments of overheated imaginations, mere war propaganda calculated to inflame public opinion and silence the voice of reason. We hear much nowadays about the wisdom and virtue of the Founding Fathers, but the story of those dreadful places obliges us to keep in mind that the success of the Revolution depended on the unheralded spirit, selflessness, and humanity of thousands of people not so very different from ourselves. They were not, for the most part, people inclined to oratory or pamphleteering. Few of them, so far as anyone knows, were especially well-off or well-read. Many probably did not own enough property to vote. Some were, in fact, the property of others. Only a handful, one suspects, had ever traveled very far from home before the provost of the Jersey swallowed them up forever. They rarely spoke more than a word or two about why they fought or what cause they were so willing to die for, except to say that it was to defend their country against a mighty and proud invader that held them in utter contempt. The nation they created in that war has changed profoundly since they were here not least of all because its great wealth and power have put us at risk of becoming the kind of enemy they laid down their lives to overcome. On behalf of myself, the Gotham Center for New York City History and Open House New York, I would like to thank you for downloading and listening to this podcast, and I hope that you enjoy the rest of the Open House New York weekend 2018. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sights and Sounds. Be sure to check out the rest of our podcasts at GothamCenter.org and sign up to our mailing list to find out about other programming here at the Gotham Center for New York City History. 